1 through 9. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear it, if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may be sure, may, uh, may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and Injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips uh, of, of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base before all people because you have not kept my ways because you've shown partiality in the law. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this word. It is a sobering and a humbling word, especially for a man such as myself to to preach, to think what it is like for you to have something against your ministers. And and so it is in every age. We ask you, O God, that you would help us, uh, even me, to humbly listen to what it is that you are saying through this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is now the third rebuke, and this rebuke is a rebuke to the priests directly. Formerly, uh, in, in the second part of chapter 1, it was the priests and their sacrifices, which implicated the people along with the priests, since it was the people who brought the defiled and the unworthy sacrifices. And so it was a rebuke, in some sense, concerning the sacrifices and not concerning the priests. But here it is the priests themselves who were in view. It is a commandment for them. God says, and now, O priest, this commandment is for you. And what is particularly in view here is their office, the office of the priesthood. God here holds them accountable who hold or who held this office, and who profaned it in so many ways, here is a sad day for the church when God has something against His ministers. When the worst sins are committed by them and not by others. When His command is for the priest and the, and the, and the clergy, the ministers, and not for the people through the ministers. Matthew Henry, there is not a more despicable animal upon the face of the earth than a profane, wicked, scandalous minister. This is something which God detests when the downfall of his church comes at the hands of his own ministers. And yet here was the situation in Malachi's day. And so looking at this passage or this uh, this book as a series of burdens We could not only call this a third rebuke, but a third burden. And it was a burden 
which again gripped the heart of the prophet and, and oh that it would grip the hearts of the people and of the priests. It was a burden for the church and her ministers. In those days it was the priests. A burden for a godly minister uh, ministry to lead the people in godliness. But it was a burden which burdened because the prophet looked for these things and he did not find them. It was a burden which filled the prophet's heart with sadness and weighed him down. Again, not merely that he ought and had to rebuke the people, but the priests. Sad indeed are the days when a godly minister cannot be found. But what is even worse than this is part of this burden which burdened is not just that God had something against these godless ministers, but that he was opposed to them and that he would oversee their downfall. And so with the subject here being the office of the priesthood, let us see what it is about the priesthood that God has to say through his prophet. Understanding again that the priests in those days were the ministers over the church in the Old Covenant which correspond very closely to the ministers of a new covenant, although we do not call them priests. Because we already have a priest and his name is Jesus. Well, the first thing that we notice is that the priesthood found its basis in the covenant, which stands out most clearly in verse 4. He says, Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, The same commandment he speaks of in verse 1. My commandment is for you, O priests, that my covenant with Levi may continue. There's the the commandment for the priest, and it is is reference to the covenant. The commandment has uh, reference, or or, excuse me, the, the commandment functions like a rebuke. And it has reference, or it has to do with the covenant we read that God made with Levi. That is to say, God's covenant with the priests. A covenant of the priesthood, which began with Levi and was continued through his sons to this day, the days of Malachi. It was, we read in verse 5, a covenant of life and peace. My covenant was with him, that is Levi, one of life and peace. Which is to say that the covenant that God made with the priest was one of life and peace. It consisted of these things, but especially... It meant that the covenant was instituted in order that the priest might minister these things to the people. It was a ministry of life and peace which found its basis in the covenant. So they were ministers of the covenant. Ministering these blessings to the people. The blessing of life, life from God, spiritual and eternal life. And even to some extent, or maybe to a large extent, honestly, if you read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament... Temporal life as well. God was outlining the ways of temporal blessing and temporal life. But also peace, which immediately calls to mind uh, the sermon text this morning. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That was also the ministry of the priest in the Old Covenant. Peace with God by means of atonement. A mediated peace that was ministered to them through the ministry of of the priests. But these were blessings, blessings of life and peace that were not inviolable in the Old Covenant. They could and would be lost, especially through the unfaithfulness of the priests and the people. 
For the very covenant which stipulated life and, and peace through the ministry of the priests also threatened curses upon a godless and a faithless people, especially a godless and a faithless ministry. And so it was also a covenant which God gave that he, that is Levi and his sons, might fear God. My covenant was with him one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, that is these blessings, these mediated blessings, that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Together with life and peace in this covenant was fear, the fear of God. The fear of God that Levi and his sons were meant to embody and that they were meant to uh, inculcate and exemplify for the people. The reason God instituted the covenant of the priesthood was to promote this. The priests were meant to fear God, especially in their service, their ministry, their priesthood. Fear lest God, uh, we got a sense of this in Exodus when God established the priesthood. He was telling the priest. Often, you you have to be careful. You are dealing with holy things. You are standing on dangerous ground. Do not do these things lightly. Be careful. Even be afraid, lest you transgress the commands that I am giving you, for I am stronger than you. That is the sense of the fear which God uh, was looking for in his priests. And so a fear and a reverence for God himself in performing the priestly sacrifices. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament, but we see it again in the New Testament, and we see it in these verses, verse 5 of Malachi 2, is that reverence and the priesthood are meant to go together. That's why in Hebrews that emphasizes the priesthood uh, to us, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, uh, basically concludes at the end of chapter 12 that we ought to worship God in a spirit of reverence and godly fear. Priesthood and reverence go together. That's a principle that we ought to grasp. It's a principle that these people had lost. The emphasis of Exodus, the emphasis of Hebrews, the emphasis of Malachi. God is not through the priesthood, though he's offering life and peace. He is not suggesting to the people a path of expiation, that is the removal of the guilt of sin, that is light and breezy. The very means he employs, namely that of the blood of a sacrifice, both in the Old and New Covenant, must inspire in us a fearful view of his holiness and even a dread of his judgments. And so the covenant which God established with Levi that is to say the priesthood, had this in view, life, peace, and godly fear, which is a very complete picture, uh, not only of the covenant that God established, but of the ministry of the priests who were ministers of the covenant. And, and, and life, peace, and fear, is, uh, that speaking of those as covenantal concerns, is just another way to say that these are the concerns, the true concerns of religion. And through the ministry of the priests, these concerns, which are the soul of religion, were meant to thrive in the life of the people of God. But there was another concern which we could add, and that is God's law, verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth. And so add obedience to your list. Life, peace, fear, obedience. 
The covenant in the old covenant we know was a covenant of law. The law stood at the center of that covenant, especially with reference to the priesthood. Soon we will see that when we get into Leviticus. And we've already seen it to a great extent in Exodus. But the reason that God established his covenant with the priests was in order through their ministry to give people a healthy appreciation for his law. Not just a knowledge of it, but an appreciation for it. The priests were called to keep it themselves, and they were also called to teach it to others. And the people through the priests were to hear it and to take it to heart, and then to teach it to their children. And so the concerns of the law were pervasive in that covenant. But the thing that we must see next, having seen the covenant as our first point, is how the ministry of the priests functioned in ministering this covenant to the people. In what sense were they the ministers of this covenant? Well, they were ministers, as we've seen, of life and peace. But also, and especially, as Israel's teachers, the priests priests not only ministered in the tabernacle, but they also ministered the law through teaching. And so we read that they were to have the law in their mouths, always speaking of it, teaching the law to the people. They were, we read, Uh, messengers of the covenant. And as it was a covenant of law, so the law must ever be on their lips. And And the concerns of the law must ever fill their mouths, the prophet says. Matthew Henry again, the duty of ministers is to keep knowledge, not to keep it from the people, but to keep it for them. This is, uh, by the way, based on verse 7. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, Going on with the quote, ministers must be men of knowledge for how are these, for how are those able to teach others the things of God who are themselves unacquainted with those things or unready in them? Ministers are to keep the knowledge of God. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what we read at the end of verse 7. It is this very sentiment that explains a view of the ministry that you will find in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Not overseeing endless ministries or uh, a calendar full of appointments, but a work week which is largely taken up with what? With the study of Scripture, filling the minister's heart and his mind and his soul with Scripture. And why? So that his mouth might be full of the Word of God and he can... Teach it and share it with the people. Keeping it not, as Matthew Henry says, for himself, but for the people. It is my duty as a minister to fill my mind and my mouth with God's laws and God's word that I may give it to you. And let God's people never complain for a want of his word so long as his ministers are ready to give it to them. But you see... The people, at the same time, the middle of verse 7, must seek it from him. And people should seek the law from his mouth. The minister whose mouth is full of the word of God. For that is why God set up the ministry in the first place, in both covenants. Ministers who were both guardians and keepers of the covenant, that's what a priest means he's a guard he's a keeper those who stand at the door verses one 
uh, or excuse, excuse me, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, but also as messengers of the covenant, guardians of the covenant, messengers of the covenant. And whenever God would do a work, he always does it by the teaching and the preaching of his word. Whenever he establishes a covenant, he sends messengers of the covenant. Whether that work is the establishment of something new or the preserving of something old. It is always by his messengers. It's always by the teaching. But that alone does not describe the ministry of God's ministers. It isn't just the teaching, but it is also the example that they set through their own godliness. That's what we read at the end of verse 6. Not only was the law of truth in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips, but he walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. Not just by their preaching, God says, but by their living. When God sets good men over the church, many are led in the ways of godliness. That's what the prophet is saying here. And not only that, but they're led out of the ways of iniquity. And the ways of equity and peace are promoted and kept among God's people. And thus the aim of the covenant is established. Namely, that God and his people might walk together. In a spirit of harmony, in a spirit of fear, in a spirit of obedience. But when the reverse is true, which is what Malachi was facing, then we read that many are made to stumble at God's law. The covenant itself being corrupted. Rather than men being helped, men are being hurt by the ministry of godless ministers. And so the greatest plight that can ever befall a church in any age is to lack such men. And yet this is what burdened the prophet so sorely and made him long for better days as he will soon express. But let us see, he says, that there were days that were better. God here through his prophet is able to recount many worthy examples that have come before, which serve either as a way to stir us up uh, or, or rather to stir them up, but us as well in a desire to emulate the godliness of these worthy examples, or else it served as a, as a further measure of rebuke, since the priest had fallen uh, so short, so far short, of the former glory of their fathers. The sons of Levi were not walking as Levi did. And let us see the value of looking back on better days, if only that we might learn from the godliness of the godly, and see that such things are really possible. Oh, God says, when I made my covenant with Levi, he was one who really feared me. Though it seems he speaks of Levi metaphorically as the embodiment of the godly priest who came after him, he being their father. God says he understood why the covenant was made. He shared the concerns of the covenant in his own heart, which was that God might be rightly feared in worship and that God's people might be led out of the ways of sin and that by a close and careful walk, communion with God might be maintained, promoting the concerns of religion in himself and in others. Now that is a worthy picture of the ministry and that is a picture you will find. In, uh, in many of the eminent saints you read about in scripture and in the history of the church. It isn't as though the church has never known such days. And through the ministry of such men, 
it occurs to us how much good one man might do. He not only preserves the concerns of religion in his own life, but he, he preserves them and promotes them in the lives of others. He is not only a man who walks in the ways of righteousness and life and peace, but he is leading others out of the ways of iniquity, both through his teaching and by his example. Again, that is why God established the covenant of the priesthood. That is why God sends his ministers. But here is something grievous indeed, the prophet says, that the priest in Malachi's day thought that holding the office was enough. Just as they imagined that any sacrifice would do the job, performing the right, holding the office, that's all that mattered. But in both, they ignored the qualifications of the priesthood and the sacrifices. Rather than following such worthy examples that had gone before, they went out of the way, we read in verse 8. You have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble. You have corrupted the covenant, says the Lord of hosts. How far they had fallen. They ignored the examples of their fathers. They ignored uh, the reason for the priesthood and the office they held. Which was, again, as guardians of the covenant, to safeguard its concerns, and as messengers of the covenant, to promote those concerns through their teaching and through their example, keeping others from the ways of sin. But instead, the sad thing is that in their own lives and in their own teaching, they had disregarded the law of God. They had shown partiality, we read, favoritism with respect to the law. You know that sort of, the sort of thing that men sometimes do. They have their favorite commandments. They have their favorite sins. Favorite sins to attack. Favorite sins to commit. It's partiality all, 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 uh, all throughout in both directions. But true godliness is devoid of partiality. Every sin that God hates, we hate. Every command that God gives, we love. Not these priests. And the worst thing of all was that they were causing many to stumble, corrupting the covenant itself. It was not just their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of their own teaching or their lack of teaching. It was the effect that it had upon the very people who sat under their ministry. And now when God's word came to them, the commandment of the Lord, the commandment of the covenant, they did not take it to heart. Their ears were dull, their hearts were hard. But here was their error. They foolishly imagined their position was a matter of birthright. Uh, much in the same way Calvin experienced in his own day. It didn't matter what a priest was teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. In those days it merely mattered that he held his apostolic right as a minister of the great Roman Catholic Church in the grand succession of the Apostle Peter. That's what they contended for. But Calvin, like Malachi, had to say, you're sorely mistaken. You've actually transgressed the very covenant in which you stand. And the example of those uh, under whom you would take refuge, the fathers. We descended from our fathers, therefore our position cannot be lost. That is the thought. But God is telling the priest here, 
And Calvin told the priests in his own day that they were sorely mistaken. For their position, let me say again, was far from inviolable. Which is to say it could be lost. The very covenant which established their position and place as priests of God had also stipulated their downfall if they should forsake the covenant as we have seen. And I might add, here is the point we sometimes forget, that the same is true even today. The fact is, which too many ignore, sadly, the people who ignore it are the very people who need to hear it, godless ministers. The fact is that God will oppose godless ministers. He has a special way of dealing with them. His judgment upon them is most severe and terrible. There is no indication whatsoever that things have changed in the New Testament. To the contrary, every possible indication that things have remained the same. To to whom much is given, much is expected. And teachers will receive the severest penalty, James says, if they be found faithless for precisely the same reason. That they led others astray, which Jesus says is among the worst sins a man can commit. Woe to the man who causes one of my little ones to stumble. Who do you think he's speaking to? Well, he's speaking primarily to ministers. Yes, this is one of the worst sins a man can commit. Add to that the way these very men were meant to minister the concerns of the covenant but who rather use their position to profane the covenant that they were meant to minister. And we are again struck with the extremity of their sin. And so we understand why God says once more that he will oppose these godless sons of Levi. He will always oppose the godless minister. Always. I don't know why we think he won't. I don't know why godless ministers think he won't. God says, even that which was a blessing to them will come to haunt them. Verse 2. Their ministry itself will become a curse. Verse 3. Such a man, God says in verse 9, are men who are contemptible and base. And Henry says the same thing. I read the quote earlier. There is a sadder sight in all the world There is nothing more contemptible, more base than a godless minister, especially uh, the godless sorts who assume the ministry in order to indulge their sin. And they cannot safely assume that nothing will happen to them. Their position is perilous. And oh, that they would realize their danger, the prophet says. Oh, that they would turn from their ways and begin again to glorify God as they were meant to do. Oh, that they would take the commandments to heart and turn from their ways. And yes, like Calvin, I see this as very much applying to our own day. I realize I'm not preaching to ministers. But here is something which very much concerns us. And that is the godliness of our our ministers and how it is we are disposed to deal with those who are not. The greatest tragedy that can befall the church has befell the church in our own day and our own land. And it is simply that we lack godly ministers. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do you see it happening? Like in Malachi's day, we lack ministers who understand 
even the covenant that they are meant to minister. They are ignorant in God's ways. They are ill-equipped to teach God's people the covenant of God. Strangers to God. Strangers to his law. Vile sinners, contemptible and base men who corrupt the covenant. And do they really think that God does not notice their crime? And do they think that when he comes, they will not know? I am always amazed at the careless, unrepentant sinner. And especially when that man is a minister. What does he think will happen to him? Do they think that God doesn't care or notice? And does he, does he not realize that the worst thing that could ever happen to a man is to have God himself oppose him? And yet here again is God's message to the godless ministers of Malachi's day. And that is that he is against them, he does oppose them, and he will deal with them in his own special way. How easily we forget, beloved, that our God is a consuming fire and that there is nothing worse, again, the book of Hebrews, nothing worse than falling into his hands in a spirit of apostasy. Did we forget that the New Covenant or the New Testament is full of the same message that we find in Malachi, but that at the same time life and peace is promised to the one who fears his name and keeps his ways? Well, that doesn't feel like a very hopeful message, does it? But there is, thank God, hope to be found. And I don't say that lightly or trivially. Do you notice that this is the last book of the Old Testament? And do you notice that the state of the church in those days was, as we've seen, a state of decline? Really, I can't imagine things being much worse than they were here. That the, not just the state of the people, but of the priesthood itself was in disarray. But here to find Israel in this position with the priesthood itself uh, full of sin, greatly underscored the need for a new covenant and a better priesthood. Here is, you might say, the end of the line for Israel, the end of the priesthood, and how relevant very soon, even in this book, the message of a new covenant and a new priest will become to us. How can we fail to see the relevance and the need for a better priesthood and a better covenant when we see not only the weakness which beset these older priests, and that was always true, but also the sin as well. And that was especially true here. And if after all this time, the whole grand history of the old covenant, things were still so bad and seemingly never right, never better, what hope was there now of things getting any better? As I said, this was the end of the line. The question that might have occurred to the people then, was it enough that God would simply raise up better men, better priests, a better priesthood? Or would it not, surely we realize, always be the case that the priests would always in some measure be sinful? And so really it was just a matter of degree. And how then... The priests themselves not only being beset with sin, but beset with weakness. Again, this is the message of Hebrews, and it's the obvious testimony of the Old Testament. How then, uh, this being the case, could God ever accomplish the end in view of the priesthood itself? The concerns of the covenant, which was, as we have seen, life, peace, reverence, 
and the law of God, would these things not always and ever fall short? That, in essence, is the burden of the prophet. It is the inability of the priests to minister the very things they were meant to minister. Oh, but come to a new covenant and see the better priesthood of Jesus Christ and you will see a priesthood which is beset with no such difficulties. And I'll read Hebrews chapter 7 in a moment where we find this very point. But really, the book of Hebrews is simply full of this thought. The perfection of Jesus Christ's priesthood in comparison with the sin and the weakness of the old covenant priests. And when you, you find a man like Malachi so burdened with this, you get a sense of the burden of the old covenant. But when you come to a new covenant, what you find is that the burden of the old covenant is lifted. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke concerning the priesthood, spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. And then uh, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Again, I say, what we find in the coming of Christ, which Malachi looked forward to, the end of the line, was the lifting of his burden, the burden of the old covenant, the burden of a priesthood beset with weakness and beset with sin. And the lifting of the burden, let us see, is more than God, more than that God would raise up godly ministers, but oh, that he might do that in every age. But that would never be enough. It was rather that God would send a perfect priest and through him accomplish all that the priesthood was meant to accomplish. Here was one, let us see, who excelled Levi in every way, who walked with God in peace and equity, for he was the very son of God the true teacher of Israel, whose mouth was full of God's law, and who, as a result of his life and death, not only established the most worthy example which the church has ever had, the true and perfect picture of godliness, but also through the power of his death and life and resurrection, led many out of the ways of iniquity, 
leading them out of its grip and, con- and condemning enslaving power. We need never fear this priesthood would fail as before. Yes, God says, we've read it here. And let us take it to heart. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a priesthood which will never fail and which will never fall. God says, I have established my covenant with him. And all who stand in a saving relationship with this priest will receive the blessings of the covenant. They will receive from him life and peace and will be instructed in the ways of my law and led out of the ways of sin. But even then, God did not now any more than he did in the days of Levi establish this priesthood and this covenant to make things seem light and easy. Even now he would have us to reverence his name. To buy, uh, to buy his priest see that the true fear of God is promoted among the recipients of the covenant. I establish my covenant, God says, my covenant with Levi, that he might fear my name. So he says with us, I establish my covenant with my son, that you might fear my name, that you might worship me, he says again in Hebrews chapter 12, having fully laid out the perfection of this priesthood, that you might worship me always in a spirit of reverence and godly fear. Priesthood and reverence go together along with life, peace, and the law of God. And this is what Christ accomplishes Beloved, a religion that is pure and undefiled and which is, in fact, unlike the priesthood of the old covenant, inviolable. It cannot be lost. It cannot be overturned. It cannot be undone. God will never have anything against his own son and our great high priest. And so let us stand in him and let us rejoice and praise him who, as the writer to the Hebrews says, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Amen. And let us stand together and, and sing God's praise. And now is the last hymn of the month, so to be sung a cappella, hymn number 542.